The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Thursday and this is George Hook with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the programme today. Dr. Robert Stern is the head of clinical research at uh, Boston University's Alzheimer's Disease and CTE Center. It's one of 29 Alzheimer's disease centers funded nationally by the U.S. Department of Health. And on site, there are 60-plus brains of former NFL players being studied. Interestingly, when I sat in the waiting room before talking Dr. Robert Stern. Also, there were NFL helmets because the study, as everybody now knows, following the movie Concussion and everything that's been talked and, and, and written about it, the dangers of uh, early dementia. And you would remember the sad interview I had last week with the daughter of Jeff Astle, the great soccer player, uh, who had an awful death at the age of 59. But it was extraordinary to go there to see the amount of work they've done. They've done huge research into it. And here is uh, Dr. Stern at the very outset of the interview. First, you need to know I'm an American football fan, all right? I was a rugby player. I love these sports. The problem is that I'm not sure that some of these sports can continue the way they're going. Because it's not about concussions. It's not about those big hits that can be reduced, prevented, managed well. So here in the States, there's been a huge, huge change in our culture and our awareness and in rules and policy from all the way from the NFL down to youth sports that focus on those big symptomatic hits that result in concussions. The thing that scares me is, is not the, the big hits, not the ones that result in concussions, but the things that are inherent to the games. All those little hits, the things we refer to as subconcussive trauma. We're just starting to get to know something about that. What I'm afraid of is that those littler hits, one after another after another, thousand times a season, is likely what starts this disease in motion way before the person ever has symptoms. You can do something about concussions. You can talk about concussions. You can prevent concussions in many ways. You can definitely manage concussions. But the way these sports are played, uh, it's going to be really hard to get the head out of the sport. Well, the other key thing here is if your American footballer earns a couple of million dollars a year, our rugby players who earn another million dollars a year or, or, or that, they're adults, they can make a decision. However, in, in all sports, children from the age of six or seven are taking up the sport. The sport is essentially the same. And we're talking about a pediatric brain. In other words, a child's brain, which is developing. Isn't that so? So therefore, we, we have to look even more closely, surely, at youth sports. Yeah. So, you know, we have a, a couple 
scientific publications that came out of one of my my studies. Uh, a PhD student of mine at the time was was taking the lead on these things, and she wanted to look at the possibility that there's a time in brain development in childhood and in pre-adolescence when there's so much going on, there's so much maturity happening, so many new changes and growth in the brain, that maybe if you get it hit over and over again, it might result in long-term problems or might make the person more uh, at risk for long-term problems. And so what we did was we looked at a bunch of former NFL players. They were all in mid-age, and they were all seen here for these extensive examinations. And we paired them up. We, We had one guy who was, let's say, 50 years old now, and another guy who was 50 years old, but one started playing tackle football before age 12, and the other started playing at age 12 or older. And we had 21 of these pairs. So currently all the same age, but one member of the pair started playing tackle football pre-4-12, one started at 12 or older. And then we looked at their current cognitive functioning with objective standardized tests. And we also looked at a certain structure in the brain using an advanced kind of MRI technique. And that part of the brain called the corpus callosum, these white matter tracks that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. And what we found was that the guys who started playing tackle football before age 12 had significantly worse cognitive functioning now as adults and significantly worse integrity of that important brain structure now as adults. So what that told us was, in that study at least, with American football players, former professionals, highest level, that in that group at least, there may have been this window of neurodevelopmental vulnerability. In other words, if you start hitting your head at that age of childhood, it may result in long-term problems. So is that enough to say that we need to do something about youth sports? Not necessarily that. We had another paper that just came out two weeks ago. It wasn't former pro football players. It was looking at a bunch of former high school or college football players. And we looked at the number of hits that they got throughout life, estimating it based on what we know from these accelerometer studies where they put these gizmos in in the helmets to figure out how many hits and how bad the hits are. So we created this estimate of how many hits they got throughout their life through youth football, high school football, and college football. And then we looked at their current cognitive and mood and behavioral functioning as adults. And what we found was pretty scary. There was what we refer to as a dose-response relationship, meaning the more hits you got, the greater the risk for having clinically meaningful problems with cognitive functioning, depression, behavioral dis control, things like that. All right. That was another study. There's a whole variety of things, but does that tell us we need to stop contact sports in youth? No. It's not enough. It's just the beginnings of the science. But here's something that I always have to ask people. At least here in the States, we do crazy things to protect our youth. As parents, I mean, we go overboard trying to make sure that they're healthy, safe, that they have the best possible future. And then we drop them off at a field 
two or three days a week and say, go at it. Hit your head as many times as you want with that most important organ inside it, the brain. I don't know if that makes common sense. We don't have the science yet to say we can't do it. But it's really an interesting thing we do, this, this um, saying, hit your head over and over and over again at times of incredible growth and maturation of the brain. We're here in, in uh, Boston University at the Center for Alzheimer's Disease and crucially, the CTE Center. Now, um, we in rugby in Ireland, you in football in America, and increasingly other sports are concerned about brain trauma and, and subsequent early Alzheimer's and early dementia caused by by brain damage, by repetitive hits. What have you discovered? We've discovered that we still have a lot more to discover. Um, what we know is that this disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is a unique disease. It's a degenerative brain disease, meaning it's a progressive disease that slowly destroys brain tissue. And we know that it's only been seen in people who have a history of repetitive hits to the head, such as in American football players, but not just sports. I mean, it's been seen in, uh, in military uh, servicemen. It's been seen uh, in uh, individuals uh, with developmental disorders who were headbangers. So the brain doesn't know what's hitting it. But we do know that individuals who have a, a history of repetitive hits to the head have the greatest risk for developing this disease. The one thing we know is that it's only been seen in people with that kind of history. So that tells us that it's a necessary variable that hit history, but it's not sufficient. In other words, not everyone who hits their head a lot is going to develop this brain disease. There, we, we have discovered certain things, so haven't we, that um, we don't know why some people do and some people don't. But, but we do know, for instance, that women are more prone to brain damage. Is that so? Mm. So there's two things we have to keep in mind. Okay. Brain damage and brain injuries, including concussion, are one thing. CTE is a completely different issue. CTE is a brain disease that's similar to Alzheimer's disease and other progressive neurodegenerative diseases. It's associated with all those repetitive hits, but it's not itself brain injury. It's not itself brain damage. So it's not like you get an injury early on, and then you get another one, and it keeps adding up, and you keep getting worse and worse. CTE starts earlier in life. For some reason, all those hits start in motion this cascade of changes in the brain that eventually, as the disease progresses and hurts more and more brain tissue, the symptoms begin. And the symptoms can start years or decades after the person's finished their sport. And so when you raise the issue of women versus men, um, that's true when it comes to brain injury and concussion to a degree. 
But when it comes to CTE, we don't really know anything about women with CTE at this point. All right, but what we what we are now concerned about this all started obviously in the National Football League, American football. It all and started it, with boxing. <laughs> well, it, it all started with boxing back in the 1920s, yes. and we've you, known about you, it for punch you, drunk and dementia right. pugilistica. It's only gotten a lot of airtime since a famous American football player died and was found to have it, which is kind of sad since we have known about it for all these decades and decades. It's only started to get attention now for the last 10 years or so. But part of the reason why we always knew about it in a way was when you looked at a boxing match uh, and you could see somebody getting hit to the head. So therefore, you didn't need to be with respect <laughs> the, the professor of Alzheimer's disease at, at Boston University to say, you know, this guy might get hurt here. The difference was with your American football, with, with our rugby, now increasingly with association football, soccer, we're learning that there are other ways of getting it. I mean, possibly the greatest English soccer team of all time is the team that won the World Cup in 1966. The tragedy now of three of that team uh, being diagnosed with early Alzheimer's and dementia. So in the case of soccer, it's heading the ball, yes? Maybe. And, and, and one thing to keep in mind that it's, it's likely not early Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's disease is another brain disease that can lead to dementia. But it's a separate disease. And most of the time what we're finding out is that people can be misdiagnosed while they're alive with Alzheimer's when actually it's CTE that's causing their problems. Now, the another study you've done here is interesting. I was looking at it where... Uh, uh, more than half of, of young people who, who, who suffer concussions or brain injury don't report it. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, uh, a high percentage of players who play uh, get some kind of injury in practice. Yeah. So the interesting study, information you've come up with is, first of all, half of them don't report it, so we don't even know they're hurt. But more importantly, as practice, so it would seem to me, and like you're a former rugby player and I'm a former rugby player and coach. We know what happens in practice. So therefore, we could do simple things. I mean, you're saying, should we stop the game? We could do simple things, surely, like change the way we practice in order to reduce the number of injuries. Yeah. That, that wouldn't change the game. The other thing is, the game you and I played is completely different from the game of rugby that is played today. Um, like you were a back and I was a forward. A back made a lot more tackles than a forward did. So therefore, there were, now everybody's making a ton of tackles. The, I'd like to, though, say that what we are seeing routinely now in rugby at the top professional level is players have been diagnosed as having been concussed, whatever that means. And then they go through what is described as some kind of protocol, a concussion protocol, and they're back playing a week, two weeks, or three weeks later. How do you react to that? It's better than in the way it used to be, right? So those are the ones who admit to symptoms, or they're the ones whose hits were big enough that the... Um, the, uh, the athletic trainer or the medical staff sees it and does something about it. Um, and it's better than nothing. 
okay? But there's still all those folks who probably aren't admitting to any symptoms. And there's all those hits that are happening inside that scrum on a regular basis. Forget about the tackles where the head's getting hit over and over again by these guys who are now bigger and faster, increasing the amount of force that they get. But you, bra- you raise a really big thing. If we can l- eliminate some of those hits, as many as we can, by doing something in practice that's different, like getting the head out of the game while people are practicing. That would be great. You know, in the States, believe it or not, the, the biggest change that happened several years ago was at the NFL, where at the time of the collective bargaining agreement, the, the contract between the, the union and the league, um, the n- amount of full contact practices that were allowed before the season and during the season was dramatically just gotten rid of almost taken those hits to the head out of practice as much as possible reduces the overall exposure to those hits. Now, is that the be-all and end-all? No, but it's a starting point. So any, any league, any sport where something is done to somehow reduce the number of hits, the better. So, you know, we have all this talk about CTE, but you know, really what we have is a bunch of questions. We don't know much about it. We don't know why one person gets it and another person doesn't. We don't know how common it is. We don't know if it's a big public health issue. Uh, we don't know what the real risk factors are. You know, are there genetics involved? You know, all these types of things. So the one key thing that we need to be able to do to move this whole thing forward and to have real answers is to be able to diagnose it during life. Right now, it can only be diagnosed after death by a post-mortem evaluation. Um, same thing with Alzheimer's disease, mind you, and all these other neurodegenerative diseases. We can only accurately diagnose them after people die. But we're getting really close to being able to do that with Alzheimer's disease. Neuroscience has moved so fast in the last 10 years. So now we need to think about doing the same thing with CT. So that's what my group has been trying to do for the last several years, is to develop ways of diagnosing this disease while someone's alive. So we're looking at all kinds of things, special PET scans that detect the abnormal proteins in the brain while someone's alive, special MRI scans to detect subtle changes, Um, blood tests that might actually be able to screen for the disease in the future, Um, uh, measures of spinal fluid, all kinds of, of cool new tests, getting really close. Well, fortunately, um, we were just funded um, by the U.S. federal government, the National Institutes of Health, a large $16 million grant over a seven-year period to move this forward, to be able to really develop ways of diagnosing CT during life. And this is a multi-center study. I've got three amazing co-principal investigators from around the country. I've got the best and the brightest. I'm so thrilled to be able to work with all these folks. And so I know that from this study, we're gonna be able to diagnose CT between five and 10 years from now. And through that, we'll be able to figure out why it starts in some people and not in others, We'll be able to figure out how common it is, and we'll be able to start doing clinical trials of new drugs to treat it and maybe even prevent it. That's what it's all about. Dr. Robert Stern, thank you so much for joining me. 
It is uh, completely my honor. Thanks for having me. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie By the way, I thought you might like to have a listen to this. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. Today is another landmark because television has made it possible for many of you to see me in your homes on Christmas Day. People have moved freely between these islands over the centuries. The contribution of Irish people to Britain has reached into every walk of life. Although it is not one to which I have ever aspired, inevitably a long life can pass by many milestones. My own is no exception. Well, an extraordinary woman is 90 today, Elizabeth II. And I think um, we should just get over it uh, about this issue about uh, the monarch in the United Kingdom. Her performance in this country would have done as much as, as many of the politicians attempting to bring peace in this island. Her performance in the Garden of Remembrance. Remember, this is a woman whose uncle we killed uh, in, in Sligo as uh, Irish people... Uh, killed her uncle and it's important for us to understand what the effort she has made as a constitutional monarch. I'm delighted she's 90. She's uh, a lovely woman who does a fantastic job for her country and we should recognise that. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie with me here and remember uh, we are in the Seaport Hotel in Boston as part of the Gateway to Europe initiative and uh, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Kevin Whelan, the Michael Smurfett Director of the Keogh Notre Dame Centre in Dublin. Uh, Kevin is in Boston to speak at tomorrow's closing session of the uh, uh, conference here at Seaport Hotel. Kevin, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. What are you going to be talking about tomorrow? Well, tomorrow we're looking at 100 years of the Irish-American relationship because obviously this year is um, 2016, 100 years from 1916. But also 1917 was the year that um, Henry Ford um, you know, opened the factory in Cork. So in a way, it's almost 100 years of the Irish-American involvement in Major League Business as well. Now... I, I, we just quickly deal with the politics because I think the business thing is very interesting as well. But, of course, um, John Devoy was that great yeah. Irish Republican Brotherhood guy. He yeah. was over in America. He, in fact, sort of believed in the idea that we could bomb the British into into giving us our freedom. And and he was very close to Thomas Clark because Thomas Clark was in jail for 16 years yeah. for bombing. So the American connection, then you had Woodrow Wilson who wasn't very helpful at all, the American president. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You might kind of tease that out. Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, there would have been no 1916 without Irish-American involvement. Yeah. And five of the seven signatories had spent time in America. America is the only country that's mentioned in the 1916 proclamation. So, you know, there's a very strong uh, American uh, link to um, 1916. But 
as we know, 1916 occurred in the context of the First World War. And one way of looking at the First World War would be to say that Britain went into the First World War as the ranking global power and America came out of it as the ranking one. And uh, you see, the, the Woodrow Wilson, in some ways, 1916, if you look at the proclamation, it's pitched into Irish America as well. It's kind of saying uh, we are, uh, you know, we're a nation and we need to be um, treated as a nation. That's pitched to Woodrow Wilson, who was, um, you know, in the middle of uh, American election campaign at that stage. After the First World War, then, when America really came out as the winners of the First World War, Woodrow Wilson had the opportunity to end empire. In fact, this is one of the great tragedies of American history, that Woodrow Wilson could have, at the end of the First World War, in the Versailles Peace Conference, he could have said, enough of empires, empires are over. But in some ways, he was um, seduced by, shall we say, British diplomacy and walked away from that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, the the countries, Egypt, India, uh, China, uh, Ireland, all in 1919, after that, all of those then have, you know, what uh, is sometimes called insurgencies. But the opportunity was there to actually end the empire. And the reason why Woodrow Wilson kind of turned against the Irish was because, and this is the day, I think, that uh, Roger Casement and, uh, you know, Banner Strand and all that is being celebrated back in uh, Ireland or commemorated back in Ireland. But the, the reason why Woodrow Wilson was so hostile to the Irish-Americans and didn't want to hear anything from them was because the Irish-Americans um, had vociferously supported Germany on the grounds that my enemy's enemy is my friend. So once America went into the war, you can do almost anything in America. But let me tell you, one thing you cannot do in America is disrespect the American armed forces or disrespect the sure. effort of the, the men and women in service. But Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson then turned vigorously, viciously against the Irish. He, he, they were the ones that he called hyphenated Americans, hyphenated Americans whose loyalty was more to Ireland than it was to America. So, you know, they, and that, that nullified the Irish voice in the run-up to Versailles because nobody wanted to hear from the Irish-Americans anymore. And it's a tragedy, really, because maybe... Um, if Woodrow Wilson had pulled in a different direction, you might have had, you might necessarily have had the War of Independence and yeah. the Civil War. Yeah, but but also, of course, in terms of getting elected in America, there were two Irish American groups over there. There were the Irish Nationalist yeah. Americans, and then of course there were Ulster Americans, yes. uh, who who were, uh, you know, would have been of a completely d- different political persuasion. And he's trying, like all um, uh, politicians, he's trying to get everybody yeah. to vote for him. Yeah, I know. And Woodrow Wilson was. A, a Bible Belt uh, Protestant, but Bible Belt America is an offshoot of uh, of Ulster, essentially. So you know you're absolutely correct in terms of uh, of uh, making the point that there was uh, you know uh, a bifurcated American um, Irish American thing. See, most Irish people don't understand, for example, that even to the present day. There's more Irish Americans who are Protestant than Catholic. Really? Yes. To this very yes, day. Yes. Descendants of the the, the very large 18th century um, okay. emigration. So you know what I mean. So like when we think of Irish Americans, sometimes we think of it as Catholic, and you tend to think, oh my God, the Irish are in Boston or yeah. New York. But there are actually more Irish in Texas. Florida and California than there are in uh, Boston, New York, or say Pennsylvania. So you know, like the Irish America is a very diverse thing, even to present day. Yeah, I got text phones, and we hadn't mentioned Bannerstrand. Well, the reason we hadn't, of course, because we had Kevin Whelan coming in, who was going to mention Bannerstrand, <laughs> and and we've now done it on. So stop worrying about the Queen's 90th birthday and Bannerstrand. There's <laughs> lots of things to celebrate. The business thing's really interesting because remember you're talking to a Cork fella here, yeah, like who that Ford thing was extraordinary. My father, his first job was in Ford, you know. Uh, uh, so what Ford's antecedents were called, yeah. wasn't that right? Yes. And uh, 
That was the first Ford factory outside America. Uh, but yes, absolutely. And you see, again, obviously, to, to even to the present day, that uh, American FDI, Foreign Direct Investment Internet, is hugely important to our economic proposition. But in some ways, you can see Ford, who was... Now, Ford was a very nasty guy in many ways yeah. and had a lot of uh, negative characteristics. But one thing about him was he was very ahead of the curve in terms of decision-making. And he understood that for, you know, he could conquer America, but he was also very quick to understand there was a massive market emerging in Europe and that Ireland was a place where he could do business to... Um, where he know, could build his cars. Where he could build his cars. And in some ways, that's still the function of Ireland in terms of the American proposition. Like, we're a, an offshore landing pad for American business coming into Ireland. Now, when we then get our own government, and, and W.T. Cosgrave's government yep. is in place, and, uh, like, the... the, the uh, the first budget and things like they were, they were working around pennies and cents like yeah. they had so little money and everything. Where did Americans' business come in then? In Because America was going now going about to go through its own trauma yeah. of the late 20s and 30s. Yeah. I suppose that, that might be the... I think Irish people, when they look back now at the um, independence and the free state and the Cosgrave government and what happened in the 1930s, you know, Irish people sometimes look at it and say, oh my God, this whole thing was... a." Uh, a disaster economically you know we kind of put up tariff walls and we were very uh, rurally and agriculturally based and we you know we'd have been better off to stay with britain you know better off to stay with the empire global uh, economy and whatever but i think what that neglects is to the extent to which the 1930s was a disastrous decade across the globe like many people felt that capitalism was finished after wall street crashed in 1929 i mean the 1930s is dust bowl america and the new deal and the 1930s is also much of europe either embracing communism and we saw how all that worked out on the one side or embracing fascism on the other sure. side. And, you know, very civ what we would think of as very civilized countries, and there were Catholic countries as well, Catholic Italy, Catholic Spain, Catholic um, uh, Germany, Southern Catholic Germany, Por absolutely, yeah. Por Portugal, you know, produced um, fascist um, countries. Yeah. But little old Ireland, with a very fragile new state, didn't succumb to either the lure of, you know, a very yeah. far left, approach or a very far right one and that's something I think that we should uh, we should acknowledge more that the 1930s globally was so horrendous and Ireland came out of that um, you know remarkably well in many ways. Now uh, one of the things I did when I was here is I went to an Irish uh, uh, bakery here in Ireland yeah. and it was full of Irish people. Yeah. I mean, you could have been in Tipperary, yeah. like, you know. And there's all these fellas who've been learning for 50 years, going in for, for bread and jam yeah. and coffees, and, and they have accents that have never yeah. changed. Now, one of the big things that's happening at the moment is, is this huge movement of people across uh, from Africa and the Middle East to Europe and so on, difficulties it's facing. One of the problems that... Uh, I have talked about is the inability of many, particularly people of Muslim faith, to integrate. What about integration in America? I mean, the criticism was made that these Irish people hadn't integrated because they were eating brown bread and little chip marmalade in Boston. Yeah. Well, what's the integration experience been, in your view, over the last 10 years? Yeah, well, I, I think, it, you know, again, you have to look at it longer. Years, um, um, yeah, well, America is an immigrant culture. And remember, us Irish... Um, you know, we came in at the bottom in America. We came in the in the eighteen forties and the aftermath of the famine. The Irish who came in were 
dirt poor, they were disease-ridden, they were absolutely unskilled in terms of what America would have kind of thought about. And yet, in four or five generations, the Irish moved from the very bottom of American society right to the very top of it. Like, I mean, uh, half of the Fortune 500 companies in America now have people who self-identify as Irish-American. So, you know, what that shows is that uh, America... Uh, ultimately benefited from immigration. Now, I think America, the United States of America, since 9-11 has turned dramatically inwards. It was a huge shock to their, to their system. And it has spawned this anti-immigrant, build a wall, keep them out type of um, attitude. And it's, it's been a, a chill factor for immigrants. And America, I think, now has a big problem because sometimes what American innovation and American um, business uh, leadership depended on was being able to attract the very best brains from all over the world, from India, from China, from Korea, right. from Japan, everywhere, and Ireland as well. Many of the best and the brightest from Ireland you know, went to America. But, but uh, we were in a taxi going out to that Irish bakery, yeah. and, and the driver was clearly foreign. His yeah. English was, was average, and he was barely a decade in America and I said to him where are you from interestingly his reaction was I'm from the United States of America he now identified himself as American yeah I know absolutely and America as I say is an immigrant culture and has had that as one of its strengths you know you know you can get the people now who are very negative about immigrants and very negative um, globally about the, the, the scale of immigration. But at the same time, immigrants, and particularly the children of immigrants, um, tend to be the next generation of innovators. So, you know, even in, and I know you talked about um, Ireland, but in, in Ireland, like, we've done a very, let, let's not put a toot in this now, George, we've done a very good job of integrating immigrants into Ireland. And I give a huge amount of credit there to the Irish education system. Irish national schools now in, in Dublin in many places, there are many UNs, but the schools have done a brilliant job of integrating these um, young people. Yeah, and we don't, we right. don't, we're the only country in Europe which doesn't have an aggressively xenophobic anti-immigrant um, political party. And I'm proud of that. But I think it's going to change because I think it's a different world we live in. The reason when people were coming through Ellis Island in their millions, there was essentially a lot of space out yep. there. And they need to be. The, 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 the millions who are moving towards Europe are moving to an area where there isn't a lot of space yeah. out there. But there's also in Europe, and everybody knows this um, very clearly, like why, did, why were immigrants first brought into Europe? Why did, why did Germany so keen to get the Turkish people and whatever into uh, Germany from the 1970s? Because Germany is below its demographic replacement rate. If you look at Europe as a whole, uh, it will actually implode demographically unless there's immigrants. You know, so like there, there's, there'll be only, by 2050, there'll be only half the amount of current Germans that there are, half the amount of current Italians. Can you run a, a Europe where people are disappearing? We're lucky enough in Ireland, I suppose, because our birth rate is still pretty high. But many, many European um, countries now have a real problem with uh, replicating the amount of people they have. And are you then going to kind of say that it would be better to build a wall around southern Europe and ca- kind of keep all these people out? Because ultimately, George, they're the ones who will pay your uh, retirement fees and they'll pay mine as well. <laughs> you know, like we need, we need immigrants. If you look at the Irish business proposition, it's very much based on being able to attract um, young people, talented young people from all over the world. And that's very important. So from our point of view, I think uh, I'm proud of the fact that we tend not to be a, a 
xenophobic okay. and anti-immigrant. And nor should we be, given that our own experience, we're here in, in South Boston, you know, one of the places that the Irish came to after the famine, and we were able to make our way here. You know, we're now at the top of the tree here. It'd be very, um, it'd be very sad if we said, no, I'm all right, Jack, pull up the ladder. I don't want these, uh, these foreigners coming in. All right, Michael Smurfett, director of the Keogh Notre Dame Centre in Dublin, Kevin Whelan, speaking tomorrow at the closing session of the 2016 on Gateway to Europe event. And it's here at Seaport Hotel in Boston where we're broadcasting from and we're broadcasting tomorrow before heading home. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm uh, joined now by uh, Shane Coleman and John Fardy because, of course, as many of you will have heard, um, Prince uh, has died. And, uh, gentlemen, um, what have we... uh, to say because this is something uh, this music isn't mine really no I'm I'm aware of that George how are you good evening Uh, we're all in complete shock this is just like Michael Jackson and I suppose David Bowie and what the the three of them have in common is that they were almost alien like in terms of their ability with music they just didn't think the way other people did they were wired differently and they were quite simply musical geniuses. Prince, on his first few albums, played every instrument. And I mean bass, xylophone, you name it. I mean, he just lived, ate and bred music. He had, you know, it's it's ironic now that I think about it, he apparently had this vault of music to be played that he made alongside all his other music that was to be kept for after his death. Yeah. And ironically, that's probably going to come into play now, tragically. It, John is talking about uh, uh, Prince's contribution to music. I mean, uh, he he was 57, but presumably he still wasn't active in music, Shane, was he? Well, uh, he was still pretty active in music. He, there's no doubt, George, and, and John is, is very good about this. In fact, we, we featured him on the, on the Sunday show, one of his songs a, a couple of weeks ago, one of his best-known songs. Um, his, his heyday undoubtedly was the mid to uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, But despite uh, he he has kept producing albums, they are not the commercial success that those albums were, the likes of Purple Rain, for example, which sold... tens of millions uh, of albums but I know John I mean you, you, you're better on this he has been recording quite quite a lot lately oh, as well Oh yeah and I mean he's he's just come back from Australia where a couple of months ago he was doing this solo piano tour and even though Manny would have agreed before this possible tragic news that his best days were behind him there was still a lot of stuff in the tank and places to go he was doing a show and George this might appeal to you where he came out on stage and despite all that had followed him up until that point he was just him a piano and a microphone the, the tour was actually called Prince at a piano and a microphone and he sang these huge songs with just the piano and that's a hard thing to do in these 12,000 seat stadiums so the game was by no means up and it was very interesting to see where he would have possibly gone and to say he wasn't really making much records selling many records nobody is anymore you know Okay, well, uh, thanks to you both, Shane Coleman and John Fardy, back at base uh, in News Talk. Of course, Richard McCormack of News Talk is sitting in our studio. Um, 
a fan, Richie, an expert on, on this man's music? I you even wear... I seem to remember you wearing a Prince T-shirt yeah. in the studio on one occasion. Part of my extensive T-shirt collection is a, is a Purple Rain T-shirt from Prince and the Revolution from, from 1985. Yeah, big fan. Big fan. Sad day. Terrible day to be honest with you, George. Yeah. Uh, the... John Fardy earlier on was, mm. was talking about his musical talent. Um, the word genius has been bandied about. The totally word deserved. genius is... Yeah, this is one of the occasions when it's deserved. 100%. The guy could absolutely do everything. Like, you go through an album's credits and it's songs uh, all written by Prince, instruments all written by Prince. His vocal range was amazing. He could play a guitar solo better than most people who are known for playing guitar. You know, your, your lead guitarist of several bands will be outstripped by Prince in a heartbeat. He could play drums, he could play bass, he could arrange, he could play piano, he could do arrange strings, he could do everything. He was kind of like a doorway. I was kind of thinking about this off air. He was kind of like a doorway in a way uh, between one room and another the other room one room being the past and the people who influenced them whether it was Joni Mitchell who was a massive influence on the Beatles uh, sundry soul and funk acts like James Brown Parliament Funkadelic and he fed then so much more so on the other side of the door you had modern day music modern day R&B so much of which owes a debt of gratitude to that man from Minnesota All right, uh, have you got some music that I could hear? Yeah, I think uh, we'll go with uh, we'll go with the T-shirt one first, will we? Purple rain. Okay, why not? Yeah, why not? All right, uh, I got that, Richie. You've got one more before we go? Yeah, because that one he did in one take live in a solo gig. So that's kind of a measure of the man in that it's, it was as perfect as you performed it on stage as it ended up being on record because they just used that one take. But he also was able to do uh, pretty upbeat pop. Uh, pretty much it came out of his pores, uh, like in this from Around the World in a Day. It's Raspberry Bray, George. She Well, that was Prince, who died today, aged 57. My thanks to Richie McCormick uh, for that heartfelt uh, tribute.